Genesis 25. Abraham had taken another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. The descendants of Dedan were the Asherites, the Letushites, and the Leomites. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephah, Hanok, Abida, and Eldar. All these were descendants of Keturah. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zoar the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There, Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roy. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Ishmael whom Sarah's slave Hagar, the Egyptian, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, listed in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Adbil, Mibzam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Timah, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedimah. These were the sons of Ishmael. And these are the names of the 12 tribal rulers according to their settlements and camps. Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt, as you go towards Ashur. And they lived in hostility, towards all the tribes related to them. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padam Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the elder will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. 
Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. I wanted Jane to read that because it had so many difficult names in it. I thought I'd trip up all the way through. And so I I thought, you know, the usual thing, when the going gets tough on the battlefield of life, there you'll find the Christian leader represented by his wife. Uh, In the early 1980s, in fact, Jane and I went together uh, to a talk in London arranged by the Lawyers Christian Fellowship. And even though it's 40 years ago almost since we heard that talk, I still remember parts of it. The text was Mark 10, about it being easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The speaker was was exciting, enthusiastic, and shone with Jesus. I I remember him joking, uh, Jesus almost saying, well, look, I suppose you could take the needle and you could take some of the fur of the tail of the camel and you could feed that through and then possibly pull a bit of the tail into the needle. Anyway, Jane and I came away from that talk really challenged and encouraged. Move forward 20 years to the beginning of the 2000s. Jane and I were on a skiing holiday in a chalet and we were a group which had both Christians and people who were not believers. In the group was a Christian couple who were missionaries in Africa and who had been mightily used by God to bring people to him. And at breakfast each morning, the husband gave a short talk. And to be honest, I wish I'd recorded those talks. They were never more than three minutes long, but they were some of the most succinct and incisive talks on the Christian faith and our need for a relationship with Jesus that I have ever heard. They were quite simply brilliant. Now, the speaker in the 1980s at the talk put together by the Lawyers Christian Fellowship was Peter Ball. He was then the Bishop of Lewis. He later became the Bishop of Gloucester. And in 2015, he was sent to prison for sexually abusing young men. The speaker on the skiing holiday was John Smythe QC, who died in 2018 while under investigation for having in the the 1970s carried out severe sadistic canings of young men. You see, the popular idea is that there are good people and there are bad people. But 
I don't see that from the Bible, and it doesn't actually accord with my own experience. It seems to me that we are people, and sometimes we do good things, and sometimes we do bad things, but we're still the same people. I I know that from my own life. From time to time, I do good things, and when I do, I want you all to know about them. But equally frequently, I do things which are selfish, dishonest, or downright wrong. And to be honest, I prefer you didn't know about those. When I was a child, preachers often used to go into the pulpit, and they would start with a prayer based on Psalm 19. They would say, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. Now, I can just about control the words of my mouth from time to time, but I am awfully grateful you cannot see the meditations of my heart. But of course, God does. God sees everything. And the amazing thing is that God has decided to work through us, despite our imperfections. The message of the Bible is not go away and get yourself holy and perfect. The message of the Bible is that God says to you, I see all your sins. I see all your imperfections. But if you will allow me, I will work with you just as you are. And because God has elected to work through us, he needs every one of us to respond. He needs everyone to step up to that which he has asked us to do. You have free will. You don't have to. But there are certain people that only you can reach. There are certain people that only you have the ability to show the love and the care of Almighty God for them. And if any one of us knowing we should be doing something, fails to do it. That bit of God's work just doesn't get done. And so looking at the way that God deals with us and accepts us even with our failures, I'm encouraged when we look at the motley crew who turned up in today's reading. Abraham Well, on two occasions, Abraham died. One of the nice things about the Bible is it doesn't pull its punches about the weaknesses. Abraham, on two occasions, lied and said his wife was his sister. And as a result, she got taken into Pharaoh's harem and a bit later into a king called Abimelech's harem. Abraham committed adultery with his uh, wife's slave, Hagar, and his son Ishmael was the result. Yet at the same time, we're told that Abraham believed God and that was credited to him as righteousness. And despite his weaknesses and despite his failings, he became the father of many nations. We know that from today's passage that Ishmael lived in hostility towards his brothers, which included Jacob and Esau. But when, a little bit earlier, Abraham had been praying for Ishmael, God said, As for Ishmael, I will surely bless him, and I will make him into a great nation. So even though God knew that Ishmael would be hostile 
to Jacob, to Esau, and to the people of Israel, his descendants to to the people of Israel, yet God still blessed him and used him. And then we come to Esau and Jacob themselves. Uh, Having a brother, I know that most brothers, and two sons, I know that most brothers will fight at some stage during their childhood. But I have to say, fighting in the womb is a bit extreme. Esau is hot-headed, and he doesn't think, think, think things through. Whereas Jacob, certainly as a young man, is cold and calculating. He's quite happy to take advantage of his brother if that advances his own position. And yet it is Jacob, despite these defects, who God takes to become the next forebear for his chosen people. And the birthright that Jacob cheats Esau from was the right of the eldest son to be recognized as the main successor, the person who would take on the authority and position of his father or the ancestor who died. But in addition, it also carried with it a right to double inheritance, double what everybody else inherited. But Esau was prepared to throw his entire birthright away for a bowl of stew. When we repent of our sins and we turn to Christ, we receive forgiveness and we individually are adopted into God's family. And there's more to it than that. As St. Paul explains in his letter to the Romans, at that moment, we become heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. St. Paul expands that uh, further in his letter to the Colossians. He says that we are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. When you become a Christian, God bestows on you the most incredible birthright. You remember Jesus said, I tell you the truth, anyone who has a faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I believe that God is challenging us at the moment, and he's saying to us, do you assert your birthright, the birthright I've given to you? Are you doing the things that Jesus would have done if he had been here today? Or are you, like Esau, just squandering the birthright you received on conversion? Now, perhaps I can try to put this in context. About three or four years ago, a number of Christians, myself included, felt the Lord was really drawing attention to two Bible passages. One comes from the prophet Haggai, where God says, in a little while, I will shake all the nations. And the second passage comes from Hebrews and is essentially a commentary on that Haggai passage. And it explains that What God means is that he's shaking things so that the imperfect man-made things will be shaken away and the permanent things of God will remain. In other words, God is not prepared to let us put our trust in our houses and our savings and our status, 
and our apparently secure lives. He's going to shake our reliance on these things so that we recognize that he alone is the only reliable security and we must put our trust ultimately entirely in him. Now, what does shaking the nations look like? Well, we see this again from the Bible in a number of places. Let me just give you one example. God says to the prophet Amos, I allowed you to experience famine, but you didn't cry out to me. I allowed you to experience drought, but you didn't cry out to me. And then in Amos chapter 4, he says, this is God speaking, Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, and I sent plagues among you. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. And it seems to me that over the last four years, we have seen increasing shaking of our nations We saw, for example, the shaking in the political sphere over Brexit. We're experiencing the shaking of climate change. Whatever its cause, the evidence seems to point to the world getting warmer and the difficulties that that engenders. At the very moment, this very moment, a great section of Africa and Asia are being devastated by locusts in a way they haven't seen for generations. And of course, we here are having the shaking both in health and, if it continues, in finances caused by the coronavirus COVID 19. Can I suggest that the Lord may be using this to ask us, those who know Him and seek to follow Him, as co heirs of Christ? Are we exercising our birthright at this important time? Are we, both as a church and as individuals, doing the acts that Jesus himself would have done if he had been here today and saying what he would have said if he'd been standing amongst us? Uh, This morning, uh, my wife Jane received an email from Chris Vallotton at Bethel in California. It's a round-robin email, so a number of you may actually have had it. And it says this, The coronavirus is creating a tornado of intense fear across the planet. But whatever impact this virus is having on you or your loved ones, remember this, God specializes in the impossible. There is no hand that can be dealt to you which God is unable to win. Yet that doesn't mean that we ignore critical facts and turn our eyes and ears from information that may help us to safeguard ourselves, our loved ones, and our communities. Instead, we respond differently as our faith and hope is rooted in God's abilities not our finite efforts. Our faith and hope is rooted in God's abilities, not our finite efforts. And then Chris Vallotton makes a a few points. I'm not going to go through them all, but just pick up a couple. Remember that fear is a liar. Think of the things that brought on fear in the past that never actually happened. Though it felt real, remind you, remind yourself 
that fear is fantastic at narrating fiction. Two, get a new perspective. The Holy Spirit is ready and able to give you a new vantage point that will open your mind up to what's true and what's possible. This is a way to revive hope that fear has tried to rob you of. And three, be intentional with where you place your faith. Make a conscious choice to trust your future in G- to Jesus and remind yourself of the spirit which he has given you. You see, it seems to me that at this time, for those of us who know and love Jesus and want others to know and love Jesus, there are certain things that we should be doing, and these include earnest prayer. There are a number of occasions in the Bible where a plague was afflicting the people, and they cried out to the Lord in prayer, and he heard their prayer and intervened. If Jesus could command the wind and the waves on Lake Galilee to stop, we as co-heirs of him have the authority to rebuke COVID-19. So firstly, earnest prayer. Secondly, faithful witness to God's reliability. As Chris Vallotton identifies, a tremendous amount of fear is being generated at the moment. Yes, COVID-19 is a major concern, but it does not merit the genuine terror and panic that seems to have gripped some people. We need to take the time to remind people of that great certainty we know from the Bible, that no matter what happens, God is in control. And if we turn to him and genuinely cry out to him, he will heal our land. As Psalm 46 reminds us, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Or Psalm 91, which tells us that those who go to God for shelter will not fear the terror of night, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. So, in conclusion, three points. Firstly, God is not looking for perfect people. He wants to achieve his purposes through you and through me, just as we are. But secondly, when we become Christians... God bestows on us an amazing birthright. We become heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. But we still have free will. We can engage with God and use what he has bestowed on us to proclaim him and to help others. Or like Esau, we can squander our birthright. And thirdly, God wants everyone to turn to him. And so at this time, he is allowing the world to be shaken, the things that we thought were secure to be shaken, to enable us to recognize the overwhelming truth that God alone can be relied upon. Now, we need to recognize that there are aspects of this shaking 
that can be deeply uncomfortable, both for us as Christians and even more so for those whose feet are not firmly planted on the rock of Jesus Christ. But equally, we need to recognize that this is an opportunity for the church and for every one of us to stand up and to bear witness to the unique reliability and trustworthiness of Almighty God.